John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 is our passage this morning. So wherever you are, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The Apostle John writes, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. From this uh, passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, Overflowing with Grace and Truth. Overflowing with Grace and Truth. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot during the trial of the man who killed George Floyd is the ubiquity of deception. If you've kept up with the trial at all, you are aware of how the defense is attempting not so much to defend their own client as to attack and lie on the man their client killed. Now, I'm not going to give a single second, not even by way of example, to these lies this morning. Suffice it to say, they have been as predictable as they are wicked. We live in a world thick with lies, don't we? So much of our own personal, spiritual, and emotional health depends on simply recognizing the lies we are told. This age-old reality about life in this world makes what John wrote about Jesus especially remarkable. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Despite how regularly we are lied to, and if we're honest, how often we ourselves add to that deception, truth is available. Truth is available according to these verses because the Son of God became flesh in order to reveal God to people. Now, our church has three values which guide our ministry, and they are grace and truth, unity, and the kingdom. And during this Easter season, we're going to spend time reacquainting ourselves with these values. And today we're going to begin with the first, grace and truth. In a world in which lying and self-righteousness are normal, I need to remember that when we know Jesus, we know grace and truth. When we know Jesus... We know grace and truth. Why? Why do we know grace and truth through Jesus? Well, John gives us two reasons in this short passage. Because Jesus came from God the Father, and because Jesus reveals God the Father, we know grace and truth. And since we know grace and truth through Jesus, our lives are then to overflow with grace and truth. So let's get into this for a few minutes. Because Jesus came from the Father, we know grace and truth. Now, the word that 
John uses here to describe Jesus is the, is the word logos. He says, the word came near. The word made its dwelling among us. And that Greek word logos would have called to mind a couple of different things depending on who you were. If you were a Greek person hearing John's gospel, that word logos would have called to mind something like the supreme purpose of the universe. Um, it would have had the feeling of, of, of deity, um, but deity that was not personal, deity that was not material, more, more ethereal, more beyond, more out there, not something you would be able to see or really interact with. If, if you were a, a Jewish person, that Greek word logos probably would have called to mind one of the ways that Jewish people were talking about God as the word. But in both cases, whether Greek or Jew, this word logos would have called to mind something like the starting point of all things, the foundation of all things, the, the, the truest reality about everything. And, and John writes that the word, the, the logos came near, made his dwelling among us. Now, I think for some of us, this is a very comforting idea. The, the fact that, that our God does not remain a long ways away, that our God doesn't stand at a distance, that, that our God isn't just looking at us or give, gave us a, a few instructions about how to live and then, and then moved on to other God-like things or responsibilities. It's a comforting fact that, that God loved us so much that God came near to us. I, I think for some of us, this idea of God coming near to us can sort of be the equivalent of like a celebrity sighting. <laughs> Right, like, like somebody you've only seen on screen, on TV, on your show, on a movie, and then you bump into them at, uh, you know, 7-Eleven or something. And you find out they're a human just like you. And, you know, they, they eat Skittles just like you. And they like Pepsi just like you. And then the next time you see them on screen, you tell your friend, oh, yeah, you know, I bumped into that person. And yeah, they're pretty normal, actually. Pretty nice person. Uh, that's not the image, I think, that, that John is going for here when he talks about God coming near to us. It's right that we are comforted by this reality, this fundamental doctrine of our faith. We should find some peace and some comfort in this, but, but I think John is going for something else here. Because the, the, the language most literally translated would be something like, the Logos uh, pitched his tent among us. The Logos tabernacled among us. And, and the echo here in this passage echoes back to the book of Exodus. Exodus, if you don't know or, or don't remember, is the, the Old Testament book that tells of God coming to his enslaved people in Egypt and rescuing them from captivity, leading them through the wilderness up to Mount Sinai, where he makes a covenant with them, where he enters into a covenant relationship saying, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell and abide with you, my glory will rest on you. And after this covenant is made, there's chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters in Exodus about this tent, about this tent that the people are supposed to make with, with an incredible amount of detail. Why? Because this is where God's glory will reside, in the tabernacle. And then finally, we get to Exodus chapter 40, and this is what we read. After the tabernacle has been completed, it's been made in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
and all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Now, again, it's fine for us to be comforted by the reality that our God came near to us. But John, I think, is evoking a different emotion here. By saying that the Logos tabernacled among us, John is saying that God's glory has come near. This is, this is meant to be an awe-inspiring thing that John is describing. It is meant to instill some holy fear and trepidation and quaking in us. It is meant to orient all of our lives. We don't go unless God goes. We stay as long as God stays. This is the, the, the picture that John is painting for us of the God who came near, of the Logos who came near. It's an awe-inspiring, holy fear-instilling reality. And John says this Logos, Jesus, came from the Father. Now, parenthetically here, we ought to just say something about the Trinity. The idea that our one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that when John says that the Father sent the Son, this is not two different gods. This is not one God in different modes of being. This is a, a, a mystery that we're talking about, about a, a one perfect God who exists, uh, as the early church said, one substance in three persons. And again, we ought to be comforted by this. Our God is not a long ways away. But if we're paying attention, we're also going to be a little bit nervous. Right? So for the Greeks, the idea of this immaterial deity who could be kind of, you know, manipulated and controlled from a distance, the idea that this deity has put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, well, that wasn't part of the plan. Nobody was asking for that. Nobody wanted that. Nobody was looking for that. And for many Jewish people, the idea that the, the uncontrollable, untamable God of fire and smoke and trembling mountains taking on flesh and coming close, well, this was not a particularly comforting idea. John is not trying to make you and me feel better about our situation. This is not a passage meant to say, there, there, it will all be okay. There, there, you will be okay. There, there, you can get through whatever it is you need to get through. This is not a passage meant to make us feel better, but this is the story. This is the reality that we need. We need a God who comes close. Because according to Scripture, you and I and those who came before us have suffered under a regime of sin and injustice and wickedness. We have suffered underneath the devil's lies about who we are, who God is, who our world is. And many of us, all of us at some point have succumbed to those lies. We believe them. We've internalized those lies. How do you know? How do you know if you have succumbed to these lies? Well, ask yourself. What would change if I, if I didn't believe that lie? What would change about how you date, about who you date, if you believed what God said about you? What would, you, what would change about how you ask for help in response to that particular need, 
in response to being stuck in that particular place? What would change about how you ask for help if you believed everything God said about you? What would change about the way you spend your money or give away your money if you believed everything God said about you? What would change about the way you parent your children, about the way that you engage with your children, about the way that you project your anxiety onto your children if you believed everything God said about you? I'm preaching to myself this morning. And one of the most common lies that we believe is that it's up to us to take care of ourselves. It's up to us to rescue ourselves. It's up to us to save ourselves. It's up to us to heal ourselves, to get our stuff together, to get our lives together, to, to, to repair our own lives and situations. It's on us. And the lie, of course, is that we could ever do such a thing. When the truth of the matter is that God needs to intervene. God has to break through. God has to rescue us. You and I did not need to feel a little bit better about our lives. You and I didn't need to be empowered so that we could make it through what we are facing. We needed a rescue. We needed a complete transformation. We didn't, we didn't need to feel a little bit better. We needed our enemies to be defeated. Think about our situation today. Think about our world today. Hundreds and thousands of the Uyghur people are in re-education camps in China right now. So-called re-education camps. There is rampant sexual violence in Ethiopia's civil war right now. Some of us just yesterday became aware of yet another example of police brutality in our country. This time suffered by a black army medic in uniform who was pepper sprayed before being pulled from his car. We could go on. We needed God to intervene in our lives. And John says that the Logos is himself God. Twice, John says that Jesus comes from the Father, is begotten by the Father. In other words, the same God who made the mountain quake, the same God of fire and smoke, that God has intervened, has broken in, has come near. And then John says this, he's come near in grace and truth. I know that sounds good, but can I tell you that if I were writing this, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like that. If I were writing it, this God wouldn't come with grace and truth. This God would come with rage and with fury and with vengeance. Not for me, of course. <laughs> for who I need God to deal with in the way I need God to deal with them. But this God, John says, comes full of grace and truth. Grace. Grace. Acknowledging the fact that you and I cannot rescue ourselves, cannot save ourselves, cannot fix ourselves, cannot heal ourselves. Grace in outside intervention, doing what we cannot do for ourselves while we were yet dead in our sins, in our transgressions. While we were yet uninterested in being healed and reconciled and put back together. That's when grace came. And then truth. Later on in his gospel, John will write about Satan, Jesus saying that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what we're up against. 
the father of lies whose lies have permeated everything. And yet John says that the truth has now intervened, that the truth has pushed back the lies. So grace and truth are available. They're available. They can be known by you and me because Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, has come from the Father. But then there's kind of like this, this, this reversal that happens. There's this reflection that happens because not only has Jesus come full of grace and truth from the Father, Jesus then reveals the source of grace and truth. He reveals the Father to us. Let me read verse 18 again in a different translation this time. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared No one has seen God, John says, not even Moses, who John talks about in this passage, has truly seen God face to face. But Jesus, Jesus has. Jesus is God, a member of the triune person of God. It's an image of great intimacy uh, of the father and the son who, who know each other perfectly, intimately. So in other words, when we see Jesus, we see God. When we know Jesus, we know God. When we see what Jesus is like, we know what God is like. When we see what Jesus does, we know what God does. When we see Jesus' reaction, we know God's reaction. But, 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 but again, I want us to see what John is actually doing here. Because John says that when Jesus came, when the word came, the word came in flesh. This is the Greek word sark, which is a, a very particular word. It just means, you know, like the, 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 the flesh, the stuff of our common humanity. John could have said uh, the word put on humanity. John could have said the word put on maleness. But instead, John uses this very basic kind of normal, uh, 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 earthy word of flesh. Right? So, so, so flesh is the newborn baby who won't stop crying who's keeping parents awake all night long. Flesh is the stomach that's grumbling when you think it shouldn't be grumbling anymore. Flesh is me lying in bed last Saturday night, shivering from chills from getting my first COVID vaccination, right? That's flesh, the basic kind of mundane, frail stuff of our humanity. And John purposefully says that the word put on that. Put on flesh. In other words, Jesus didn't come as the ideal person. Whatever that ideal person looks like in your mind. Jesus didn't come as some constructed, idealized version of humanity. Jesus came with a grumbling stomach. Jesus came with headaches. Jesus came with skinned knees when he was a child. Jesus came with with relationships that were complicated and and fractured and had to be figured out. Jesus came in our flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul will write uh, that, that the cross, the crucifixion, is a stumbling block to both Jew and Gentile. How could the God of all creation be crucified? Well, we could say the same thing about this passage. The God of the universe taking on flesh. It's not what we would plan. This is not how we would write the story. And yet this, John says, is what God chose to do. So for some of us, there's some bad news here. Because some of us find this idea a little embarrassing, if we're honest. Right? Like this is, this is not the, the thing that we lead with when it comes to our faith. 
uh, you know, our, our vision of Jesus is maybe the, the high and, and risen and, and lifted up and glorified Lord over everything. Or maybe ours is the, 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 the radical revolutionary Jesus who is speaking truth to the powers that be. John says Jesus took on flesh. Jesus took on the frailties of our humanity. Jesus took on our, our, our very, the very essence of what it means to be weak and frail human beings. And I know that that for some of us, it's like, ah, you know, I don't, you know, maybe, maybe I can kind of leave that behind. Maybe I can kind of like contain that. I don't have to lead with that. It doesn't have to be central in my faith. But the apostles in Acts chapter 4 said that there is, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We don't get to look past this. We don't get to silo this. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It is to welcome the God who took on our flesh. Because only Jesus, the only begotten of the Father who put on our flesh, only Jesus reveals to us the Father's truth and grace. The flip side of that is some really good news, which is that we get to receive God's grace and truth right now. Not once we have realized our own idealized version of ourselves, right? Which we all have in our heads, right? But we all have in our heads this idealized version of ourselves. And what I've noticed, I don't know, maybe it's just me. What I've noticed is that the older I get, like my imagination, I'm still like, I think about it, I'm like 25 in my imagination still. Like I picture myself and then I see myself in the mirror. I'm like, hmm, no, the 25-year-old David did not have those gray hairs. But the great news is that that grace and truth is available to us right now in our doubt, in our tiredness, in our fatigue, in our anxiety, in our anger, in our frustration, in our sin, in our wickedness, in our, in, and on and on and on. That grace and truth is available to us right now. Why? Because Jesus took on flesh. Jesus didn't take idealized flesh that requires that we become our idealized selves in order to, to receive the grace and the, and the truth of our God. Jesus met us exactly where we are. He stepped in to our experience right where we are. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus from the Father and so full of grace and truth, but by taking on our flesh, he points us back to the Father, the very source of grace and truth. And so so I want to invite you to look hard at Jesus this Easter season. I want you to look hard at the one who took on your flesh. I want you to sit and to meditate and to rejoice in the fact that the the preeminent, transcendent son of God, the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together, took on our flesh. So that when we look at Jesus, we know everything we need to know about God. When we encounter Jesus, we encounter everything we need to encounter when we encounter the truth and the grace that flows out of Jesus, we have access to endless sources of truth and grace in our own lives. Don't look past that. Don't move past that too quick. Don't think that you've graduated from that too quickly. He is the one who took on our flesh. And because of that, we know grace and truth. Let me, let me end here. I've called this series Cultivating New Creation because one of the results of Jesus' resurrection is that new creation is now breaking into our world. God is making all 
things new right now. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to participate in that new creation and to have eyes of faith to see how that new creation is growing all around us. So I've talked a lot this morning about knowing, about knowing grace and truth. And that's really important. We need to to know and understand the grace and truth that Jesus makes available to us. But you probably saw in this passage that, that grace and truth cannot be contained simply by knowledge. Jesus didn't come just to teach us about what grace is. Jesus didn't come just to kind of lay out, okay, here's all the lies that you've believed. And now here's all the truths that you should believe. Stop believing this stuff and start believing this stuff, right? Yes, Jesus came as a teacher, but Jesus didn't come only to teach. Jesus, John says, came full of grace and truth. Jesus came overflowing with grace and truth. Jesus didn't come just to teach us a subject. Jesus came as the very essence of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, John says, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Have you ever been around a joyful person? You know, somebody who's not, I don't mean like that annoying you know, you know what I mean? Like, we're just happy. Even when you shouldn't be happy, you're like, what, where, what, what planet do you live on? I mean, that, that, that deep, deep, deep joy. That joy that comes from, from the, the place beyond our circumstances. That joy that can, that, that can allow you to be honest about what's actually wrong and wicked and broken and unjust and yet still have a foundation of hope and confidence. Have you, have you been around someone who's got that kind of joy and, and it just flows out of them? They're not just telling you like, oh, I'm a joyful person. Uh, or let me tell you to how to have joy. If you stop doing this and start doing it's just in them. It's coming out of them. And what happens? It's contagious, right? It starts to get in you as well. The joy that's flowing out of them starts to ooze into you. This is the picture of Jesus full of grace and truth. As we get closer to Jesus, that grace and truth begins to flow into our lives as well. In the same way that the Son is indescribably close with the Father, Now we are invited to that same closeness with the Son. Can can you think about that for a minute? Paul, or John here is trying to describe how close the Son is with the Father. It's it's this this profound intimacy that allows the, 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 the truth and the grace of the Father to naturally flow through Jesus. Now that same intimacy is available to us. That we are now invited because God took on flesh to be so close to Jesus that that same grace and truth flows into our lives as well. So what would it look like for you, for me, what would it look like for us to grow in this area of grace and truth? What would it look like for us to live into this reality of Jesus being sent by the Father to reveal the Father to us. Well, I think for one, we would be really gracious people. Grace would just be the air that we breathe. We would be hyper aware that there's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. Nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing we can do on our own to rescue ourselves. Amen? That we are utterly dependent on the intervening grace of God. Which, by the way, and this is for some of you, it would mean there's nothing you can do to fix somebody else. Nothing you can do to heal or save somebody else. But that God, through you, will heal and rescue and save. But it's not your responsibility. 
This would mean that there's room for absolutely no self-righteousness in us whatsoever. No self-righteousness in us whatsoever. Okay. <coughs> Let me say this. Um, self-righteousness can be something that our church struggles with. Maybe all Christians do. I don't know. But I think that there is something, uh, I think that there is something a little bit unique about a, a church like ours that prioritizes justice, right? That, that we can say, so, so we see that there's injustice in this world. We understand that God has called us to respond to that injustice. And so what do we do? We start looking at those other Christians who are not involved in the work of justice, and we feel pretty good about ourselves, don't we? And, and, and we can kind of look down our noses at those other Christians. Or, or perhaps even more deadly, we can start to think, well, we've got to figure it out. I understand. I get it. My eyes have been, have been opened up. So I'm good now. And so then we become immune to correction. We become immune to a sister or brother coming to us and saying, hey, you actually hurt me. You actually wounded me. But that self-righteousness keeps us from actually acknowledging that or seeing that. So the more we live into the grace of Jesus, the less self-righteousness there will be room for in our lives. Amen. There will be nothing in us that believes that we did this on our own, that we figured this thing out on ourselves. There will be tons of room for confession, for admitting that we got it wrong, for asking for forgiveness from a sister or brother who we hurt, whether intentionally or, or not. Grace will become the air that we breathe. One more thing. We'll be more gracious with ourselves, too. As the grace of Jesus flows into our lives, we'll be a lot kinder to ourselves. We'll be a lot more merciful to ourselves. For, for some of us today, the harshest critics in our lives are ourselves. It's the voice in our head. It's the voice in our heart. It's the voice pointing to our past. It's the voice pointing to our sin. It's the voice telling us what other people think about us. There is a harsh critic in many of our heads and hearts condemning us, saying you're not living up to that standard that somebody else has for you. But as the grace of Jesus gets more and more into us, we will be gracious with ourselves as well. Amen. Amen. We'll also be people of the truth. We will be people who prioritize the truth over any deception, any lie whatsoever. We will be a people who no longer are content with little white lies, explaining things away, covering things up. We will tell the truth about everything, about who our God is, about, about what our world is like, about what our own lives are like. We will tell the truth to our sisters and brothers who have that same harsh condemning critic in their head. Amen. We'll come to that sister and brother and say, you are beloved by God. You are chosen by God. God has a hope and a future for you. You are forgiven by God. We will preach the gospel to each other in that way because the truth will always be on our lips. And then I, I, one last thing. I think we will be aware as, as, the, as the truth and the grace of our Jesus flow into our lives. I think we'll be aware of the glory of God in our midst. Right? That we, will, we will understand that though this is not a message meant to make us comfortable, it does open our eyes up to the glory of God that is right here. That the tabernacling presence of God is not a story we tell about a long time ago. It's not about a pilgrimage that we have to make somewhere else. It's right here, right now, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our individual lives and in our corporate life together. The glory of... So we will come with fear and trembling to worship. 
We will come with fear and trembling to our Bible study and to our community groups. Some of you who are coming to serve this afternoon at Jackie Robinson, we come with fear and trembling as we stand in the presence of other sisters and brothers of God, knowing that the glory of the Lord rests among us. So that means we are always primed for worship. Amen. Minister Marquita, we're always primed for worship. It's not just on Sunday mornings we come. No, no. Our hearts expect to worship. Our hearts expect to be able to proclaim our allegiance and our adoration of our God because we understand that the glory of the Lord has taken on flesh and gotten close to us. So we will cultivate together a sense of holy awe and wonder and expectation and anticipation. Because the tabernacle in God has come near. So, 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 uh, if you have not, will you say yes to the word who took on flesh? If you've not opened your heart to the, to the transcendent creator God of all things who took on flesh so that you could know the love and the mercy and the grace and truth of God, would you say yes to Jesus today? For those of us who've said yes to Jesus, but we look at our lives and they're not marked by grace and truth. What's the invitation? It's to come near to Jesus. It's to recognize that our God took on flesh so that we could be pointed to the truth and to the grace of our God. And could our community, could our church grow in this area more and more and more so that anybody, no matter how long they've spent with you or me or us collectively, they would say, that is a people of grace and truth. The grace of God just oozes out of them. They, 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 don't, they don't tell any lies. <laughs> they don't accept any lies. The truth is strong among them. People of God, Jesus tabernacles with us. Jesus takes on flesh and dwells with us, full of grace and truth. So would you allow that grace and truth into your life and then to flow from you out into somebody else's life this week? Spirit of the living God, confirm your word to us today. Say to our hearts and to our minds what only you can say. Soften us where we need to be made made tender. Bring new creation, new life into those places that have become hard. Oh God, you are the truth. You, You are the essence of grace. And this is easier to talk about than it is to experience, than it is to believe, than it is to live into. We want to, Lord Jesus. We want to be people of truth. We want to be people of grace. And so help us to to draw near again to our Lord Jesus. We ask, God, that that you would open us, not just to knowledge about truth and grace, but a, a visceral experience of it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.